hppodcraft.com. In response to Karnaki's usual card of invitation to have dinner and listen to a story, I arrived promptly at 427 Chain Walk to find the three others who were always invited to these happy little times there before me. Five minutes later, Karnaki, Arkwright, Jessop, Taylor and I were all engaged in the pleasant occupation of dining. "'You've not been long away this time,' I remarked as I finished my soup, forgetting momentarily Karnaki's dislike of being asked even to skirt the borders of his story until such time as he was ready. Then he would not stint words. "'That's all,' he replied, with brevity. And I changed the subject, remarking that I had been buying a new gun, to which piece of news he gave an intelligent nod, and a smile which I think showed a genuinely good-humoured appreciation of my intentional changing of the conversation. Later, when dinner was finished, Karnaki snugged himself comfortably down in his big chair, along with his pipe, and began his story with very little circumlocution. That is the opening of William Hope Hodgson's The Gateway of the Monster, the first tale of Karnacki, the Ghostfinder. H.P. Lovecraft mentioned this story in his essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature, and we're going to talk about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are here at hppodcraft.com. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And uh, who was that reader we just heard? Oh, that's a favorite of mine and others, John Hancock. <laughs> Yay, I'm glad to have John back. A couple of weeks ago when we decided to do uh, Karnacki and you told me the first story, you said it was called The Gateway Monster. Yeah. And I had kind of a hectic week or so, so I didn't actually get to read the story until today. And that whole time I was thinking, what? what's a gateway monster? <laughs> gateway of the monster. Yeah, the, the story is The Gateway of the Monster, but I was thinking, like, is that is that some kind of recreational monster that, that leads you down the path to more lethal and addictive <laughs> monsters? <laughs> like, gateway monster. But but you're right. It's the gateway of the monster, and that makes a heck of a lot more sense to me. Lots of folks recommended the Karnacki stories to us. The folks over at the Seances and Spook Shows podcast, mm-hmm. which I, I think we're supposed to guest on at some point. I've heard that. They told us to check it out. Listeners David Goodwin and Daniel Wilde both wrote in within a couple of days of each other to say, why don't you try this Karnacki business? So it was just in the cards for us to tackle these next. You know, I know Lovecraft mentioned uh, the Karnacki stories. So mm-hmm. what did he say exactly? This is from the essay. It says, Mr. Hodgson's later volume, Karnacki, the Ghost Finder, consists of several longish short stories published many years before in magazines. And we know that this story was published in The Idler in January 1910. Lovecraft goes on to say, in quality, it falls conspicuously below the level of the other books. Uh, We here find a more or less conventional stock figure of the infallible detective type, the progeny of M. Dupin and Sherlock Holmes, and the close kin of Algernon Blackwood's John Silence moving through scenes and events badly marred by an atmosphere of professional occultism. Few of the episodes, however, are of undeniable power and afford glimpses of the peculiar genius characteristic of the author. So do you agree with Lovecraft's assessment of the story? Yeah. (laughs) I kind of do, too. We covered the author William Hope Hodgson before when we did uh, House on the Borderland. That was his book, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's pretty out there and pretty weird, but I think I might have enjoyed that better than this. That said, there are some things in it that are interesting. Oh, there are, for sure. Uh, It just seems pretty unweird me yeah these stories it's sort of like he has a problem and he solves it the end and Karnacki himself has more knowledge and uh, supernatural abilities than your typical protagonist in these kinds of stories but we can talk about that as we go along uh, l- let's kick it off the story starts off at a little dinner party that Karnacki is throwing just a few buds and suds <laughs> then after the meal he recounts 
his tale. Karnacki, being a ghostbuster of sorts, has a reputation and is called on by folks that have supernatural problems. So this guy, Anderson, called up Karnacki. He wants him to help with a murderous ghost problem that he's got. <laughs> right. Anderson only lives 20 miles away. Of course, in Karnacki's story, names have been changed to protect the innocent. The guy <laughs> is not really Anderson, no. and, and Karnacki won't name the actual town. And I don't really know why. Do you think that that would ruin the guy's reputation for folks to know he had a ghost in his house? And I, I, that seems weird. I would not judge somebody because they had a problem with a ghost. No, no. Especially if they were smart enough to have Karnacki come and solve their ghost problem for them. Yeah, so I don't know why he's protecting Anderson, but he is. When Karnacki gets to the house, there's only one person there, this old butler, Peter. He's known about this ghost and this haunted room for quite a while, and it's called the Grey Room. I like that, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it, and it's probably described as such because it's just painted gray, but that's not explicitly stated. Uh, they just start calling it the gray room, and yeah, I, I, I don't know, something about that sounded cool to me too. The ghostly manifestation was at night. So this happened every night. The door to the gray room would open and slam shut, even if the door was locked. Also, the sheets and blankets would be ripped off of the bed and thrown into a pile in the corner. The slamming door was mostly the big problem because it mm -hmm. would you know, wake up and scare the old butler. Right. And sometimes it would just do one slam. Sometimes it would do it over and over again. And that's a nuisance, man. It's no consistency there. You don't know what you're going to get. Well, yeah. And just laying there trying to sleep with the door slamming over and over. I just can't imagine putting up with it night after night. But the butler's absolutely terrified to go into that room or check it out at all in the evenings. So this is a little different than other ghost stories we've covered. You know, this isn't some kind of romantic tapping on the wall. No. <laughs> like this ghost is definitely malignant in yeah. some way. And, and, and so much so that the butler says, I'm not, no, I'll put up with the door slamming all night rather than even go near that place. Place. The history of the Grey Room goes back 150 years, and there have been three people strangled in it. A man, mm -hmm. his wife, and a child. But also, Anderson is not going to be around during Karnacki's investigation. He just left. Yeah. And he said, I'll leave the butler there. He could take care of things for you, which is kind of a dick move because this butler is terrified. Uh, well, why would you? I would want to stay in that house. No, I mean, let Karnacki deal with it on his own. Yeah, let the butler go home. Get a scamper. Let the butler go, too. After eating, Karnacki wants to go check out the room. But the butler mm -hmm. said no one has gone in the room at night, not the whole 20 years of service. And the butler is really scared for Karnacki. He really, really doesn't want him to go inside. And Karnacki just laughs at him about it. Says, you know, OK, you can stand by the door and, you know, maybe you'll catch something if it comes out being really sarcastic toward the butler and again it's like well Karnacki's clearly dealt with some supernatural mayhem in the past so why would he be giving this butler any heck like he's not a skeptic he believes in this stuff he probably thinks it's just annoying specter he just doesn't believe the severity of it yet yeah exactly so Karnacki takes a few candles into the room and Peter waits out in the hall the description of the room it's a big apartment well furnished in the grand style with a huge four poster which stands with its head to the end wall uh, there were two candles on the mantelpiece and two on each of the three tables that were in the room. What he does now is he goes around the room and he takes this baby ribbon and he starts putting it around things. Anything that touches them, they'll break and he'll know somebody, some physical thing has been through there. I think this is kind of him trying to make sure that it's no prankster, you know, up to shenanigans, that it's actually a ghost. This is like, that's like an old James Bond trick. I remember... He would pull a hair out of his head, lick it, and stick it on the door frame so he could tell if somebody had come into the room while he was gone. <laughs> Thought that was so cool the first time I saw it. It's one of the Connery movies. I can't remember which one. Peter's still freaking out about this, and he's staying out in the hallway, and he keeps saying things like, maybe you should come out. It's really dangerous in there. Oh, be careful. Why don't you stay closer to the door? And Karnacki's like, look, dude, I got work to do. You need to chill out. Yeah, Peter the butler is really getting on his nerves because he's like, I don't need any hand-wringing. I'm about my ghost-finding business right now. This is for brave men, so Ooh. please stop getting my nerves up, too. But, you know, is Karnacki, quote-unquote, the ghost-finder really the best name for him? No. I was thinking about that in this moment. 
Because he didn't find this ghost. <laughs> no, he didn't. Somebody else told him where the ghost was. He didn't have to find anything. Exactly. No, he's definitely a ghost destroyer. Yeah. A ghost dispeller. Ghost fighter. Ghost buster. Not a ghost finder. It takes a while for him to ribbon up the stuff. By the time he's done, it's 11 o'clock at night. And just as he's walking over to the couch, Peter shouts, come out, something's happening. So Karnacki starts to run out of the room and then the candles on the table go out. Before he gets to the door, though, he kind of stops and goes, all right. I need to chill out, turns around, sees nothing out of the ordinary. So he starts to go back into the room, and then this wind blows out the candles that are still lit. Mm -hmm. Karnacki tries to walk out looking cool, but he's a bit freaked out. So he steps out in the hall, and he goes close the door, but he feels something pulling the door open, you know, as he's trying to close it. Karnacki pulls really hard on it and closes the door, and then he locks it. Very intelligently, uses his candle and his sealing wax to seal up the other five rooms that are between his bedroom and the gray room. There's about five doors there. Because he doesn't want anybody opening and slamming those doors Mm -hmm. as a way of tricking him into thinking that it's happening on the other room. So he's still doing everything he can to make sure that nobody's interfering. So Karnacki goes into his room, settles down for the night until he's woken by a loud crashing sound. Mm-hmm. And he hears the door slamming loudly. So he gets his revolver. I don't know, again, what he thinks the revolver is going to do, but maybe <laughs> if it's shenanigans by a mortal, mm-hmm. he can shoot that guy. Seems a little like, extreme to be shooting somebody just for doing some ghost shenanigans, but... He's the ghost shooter. <laughs> So he runs out into the hall. He goes out and then he just stops. He just can't get himself to go any further. He senses something is really wrong here and that it's best just not to deal with it right now. And he's scared. Yeah. So he creeps back into his bedroom and he locks his door. Shouldn't have laughed at Peter the butler because clearly there's some malevolent influence in here. He says, you all know I am not really a cowardly chap. I've gone into too many cases connected with ghostly things to be accused of that. But I tell you, I funked it. Simply funked it like any blessed kid. <laughs> well, that's a word that's changed in meaning. <laughs> it sure has. <laughs> but I mean, I, I you know, it, it does say in the dictionary, it describes a cowardly person. If you're funked? If you're funking it, you know, you're running away scared, which is not whatever happens if I hear some James Brown, I run towards it. Or bat dance. Yeah, or bat dance. <laughs> oh, man. I can't believe that bat dance was ever a thing. <laughs> Who was I to this day? Who wasn't in 1989 that was like, you know who needs to do soundtrack for Batman? Prince. (laughs) I don't get that. But there was a lot of funk in that soundtrack. There was a lot of funk. Well, so Karnacki funks it back to his room and and has a sleep. He wakes up the next morning feeling bad about being scared, but he says that it might have been for the best. Right. Sometimes he thinks with cowardice, there might be something more going on, like actually something supernatural warning and fighting for you. Yeah. I don't know if he's rationalizing it or not, but basically he's thinking, well, I was that scared because something's trying to protect me from whatever's in there. Or it's just an indication of how dangerous the situation really is. Yeah, exactly. Peter shows up uh, with some coffee and tells Karnacki that he's been up all night worrying about him. This fills Karnacki with little warm fuzzies. Yeah, he's Mm. pretty happy about that. Karnacki wants them to go look and see, you know, what happened. And he admits that he couldn't go in there at night, to which Peter says, I'm very thankful, sir. Flesh and blood can do nothing against devils. And that's what is in the gray room after dark. The seal on the door was broken, Mm. but the seal in the keyhole wasn't. So they open it up. Nothing in the room was disturbed. None of the seals are broken. Just the bedsheets are on the floor in the corner. Karnacki feels his revulsion towards the bedsheets. He doesn't want to touch them, but Peter goes right to it, all business-like. So this is something he clearly does every day yeah so he's not a complete coward he just knows that at night things are very dangerous in there 
during the day, he's got no problem cleaning that place up. So Peter remakes the bed and then closes the door. They seal it and lock it. Karnacki goes for a walk and does a little uh, strategizing, comes back, has the servants remove everything from the room except for the bed. Then he goes in and seals and locks up the whole thing again. At night, he sets up a camera in the hall with a flash and a string. So if the door opens, the camera will take a picture. He sets his alarm to wake him at midnight, figuring that's when all the business will start up. So here we have that template for all these cable ghost shows. <laughs> you know, setting up the camera, setting up the lights. I did a quick search to see if any of them ever were called Ghost Finders. Uh-huh. It seems like at some point there's been a cable show called Ghost Finders. But what I actually uncovered, I got distracted because looking up Ghost Finder, I found there's like hundreds of ghost finding apps for Android and for iPhone. What? Yeah, I mean, of course there are, but it just never occurred to me. There are things that you can turn on at night and it'll map out, you know, where the ghosts are in your house. <laughs> but yeah, I, I can't believe there must be enough of an industry for that because there were so many. I, I'm just curious how the iPhone could detect ghosts. They never talk about that feature when you run the updates. <laughs> <laughs> He gets up at midnight, gets his gun, takes a quick look, nothing yet, and he sits Mm -hmm. in the doorway to his room. Then the flash goes off and he hears the door bang. He can't see anything because it's kind of far down the hall and he only has his candle. The sound is really scary to him. Again, he feels that really deep, deep fear in his body. It's hard for him to keep it together, but he does. Yeah, he says he's so scared it's as if his bones were water, which was a pretty awesome description. Yeah. So as he's sitting there, His candle goes out and he's in total darkness. So he just backs into his room and he locks the door. Right. And then he can sense that something is in the corridor. But then he knows, oh, that thing is right outside of my door. It says, uh, for some unknown reason, I knew it was pressed against the door and it was soft. That was just what I thought. Most extraordinary thing to think. Come on, that's a cool... Yeah. That it's just described as soft? Yeah. There's a lot of awesome, creepy things in this story. Yeah. My initial criticism on this story as a whole, I stand by. But there are some amazing bits in here and some really freaky, gross, cool stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, the backstory is cool. What's happened so far is cool. It's just that it tips... Once Karnacki starts whipping out his skill set, and we're about to see that. So Karnacki in his room, freaking out, this thing's outside of the door. He sits on his floor and he draws a pentacle around him and he just sits in there all night. It's that magic circle thing that comes up again and again. The banging sporadically continues through the night. Uh, With daybreak, it all ends. So Karnacki finally gets up the courage to get up and go check out his camera, wipes out the pentacle that's on the floor, and Peter shows up with some coffee. They mention every time Peter shows up with some coffee, maybe he's drugging the coffee and that's the reason he's having these hallucinations. This is all uh, Peter's scheme. What would he get out of it, though? He's just having fun. (laughs) Just a good time. Yeah. They go to the gray room and it's all as it was the night before. And the only seal that was broken was the one on the door, the gray room. And of course, the bedclothes are often in the corner. So they lock and reseal the room. After breakfast, he develops the film and it's just an image of a partially open door. Nothing fun. That was too bad. I was yeah. hoping we'd see a monster there. The plan is now to stay the night in the gray room. Mm-hmm. But he's got some gear, so he doesn't go into detail yet about what it is. One of the things that he does bring in is a live cat in a basket. Yeah. And so he seals himself inside the room. The cat and his equipment. And well, he tells Peter, I'm not going to be coming down to dinner because he wants Peter to think, well, he's just retired to his room for the evening. It seems like an odd deception, but I guess he just knows if the butler knows that he's going to stay the night in there, he'll do anything he can to get him out. And he doesn't want him out there hand wringing anymore. So he's going to go up there and try and be quiet and do all these things without Peter knowing. He sweeps a section of the floor with his magic broom that he brought. And then he draws a chalk circle and he makes another circle within the circle while he's sitting in it. It's called the second sign of Sama 
ritual? Yeah, good luck with that. There's three S-A-A-A-M-A-A-A. So you just Sama ritual. Then he draws a pentacle in that second circle. So he says, in the five points of the star, I place five portions of the bread, each wrapped in the linen. And in the five bales, opened jars of the water I'd used to make the water circle. That's the inner part, I think, the veils are so he's got some doctor strange stuff going on here yeah and i think this may be the stuff that annoyed lovecraft what he called the professional occultism yeah and it does change the nature of the story a bit as we touched on before because karnaki has a ton of supernatural knowledge powers this is usually not your main character this might be somebody who comes in later mm-hmm. you know who can explain some things but to have this be the person who is experiencing the haunting it's almost more action at this point than horror yeah because so far you know, the story's been pretty creepy but it just starts to feel a little dumb when this stuff comes out at least to me there's a part of me that loves that supernatural adventurer thing but it just kind of screwed the atmosphere of this story a little bit. Yeah. I just feel like the tone of it was setting it up to be a typical weird tale. And then it sort of changes and it becomes an action story. And then I didn't really care for it. I don't know. Maybe if it, in the beginning it was a little bit more action-y, I, I think I would have been okay with this. Well, because, you know, say somebody has a weapon in a story, a gun. I know what the weaknesses of the gun are, mm-hmm. that it's going to have only so many shots, et cetera. You have a range that you have to hit somebody with. But here he's talking about this stuff, the broom of hisop. Like, I, I don't know what that does or how much yeah. protection it affords. And so it's hard for me to feel the tension yeah. that I would with a normal human protagonist who had normal human skepticism and weaknesses right. up against the supernatural force. So I like it on one in one way, but like as we both said, it just kind of changes the nature of the story a little bit. He talks about some magic history and technology and about how some folks have had problems with protective wards, and he goes into specifics. Right. He references cases that we don't know about, nor does he explain what happened in those cases. One of them is the Black Veil case. One of them is the Moving Fur case. That's okay, because they both sound cool, and, and it, it's actually more fun to imagine what those might have been than if he'd explained them. Right. But I guess these are the cases in which he learned the limits of his defenses and started cooking up ways to build a better defense against right. the ghosts. Yeah, and he finally reveals this thing that he's created is called the electric pentacle. This is what he says about it. The electric pentacle, setting it so that each of its points and veils coincided each with the points and veils of the drawn pentagram on the floor. Then I connected up the battery and the next instant, the pale blue glare from the intertwining vacuum tubes shone out. Now we're talking about science versus magic or religion here. But I think folks don't really understand what science is. What do you mean? I hear people often say it's science versus religion or it's yeah. science versus magic. And all science is being able to test something right. and see if it works consistently. It's a process. It's not a body of knowledge. It's how to get knowledge. That's correct. It's methodology. Exactly. What he's doing here is total science. Yeah. There's a thing that is affecting the environment and he's figured out ways to test it. Obviously, it's consistent with what other things that he's tested before. Right. So once you understand something, I don't think it's magic anymore. I think it's just science. I mean, there's so much in our science that we don't understand still. Like science hasn't given us lots and lots of answers and people theorize about things. Sure. There's still no unification theory. Right. Or even even on a, like a pharmaceutical level, you know, so often drugs are developed and then they have an effect on somebody that wasn't what they anticipated. Then they say, oh, this allows us to treat this disorder. We know that it treats it. Do we know why the disorder is happening? Still not. But we know that, you know, perhaps this isn't a, as a treatment. I totally agree with what you're saying. There still can be a huge unknown to what you're doing. But as yeah. long as you're applying, testing things out and then looking at the solutions and then changing the experiment, that it's totally scientific. For me, the fact that it's called the electric pentacle, it kind of gives it like a 60s vibe in my head, <laughs> like the electric Kool-Aid acid test or something. <laughs> it sounds like the electric pentacle would have been some avant-garde hippie band that was like really pushing boundaries then, but now is totally unlistenable. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I imagine this thing being neon, you know. 
yeah. in the room, giving it this almost Vegasy kind of look. From the way he describes it, it kind of sounds like that maybe at each of the points in the veils, which I guess mm-hmm. is where the points connect, there's a vacuum tube that glows. Right. And then there's wires connecting it to those tubes. So I don't think it's like a neon tube that runs in a pentacle form. <laughs> when I adapt this into a music video, it will. <laughs> As it should. Yes. <laughs> Sitting in this room, just waiting for something to happen. He says it, the room had a stench of bruised garlic and he hated that smell. Hmm. And the sun finally sets. Uh, he checks his camera and his revolver. Why he's got the gun. I don't know because it's a ghost for sure. Pretty much now, I think. But maybe he's going to test how guns work on ghosts. A gun worked on the invisible swordsman. So. I don't know who the Invisible Swordsman is. <laughs> the Three Amigos, man. Oh, okay. Remember, you're supposed to shoot the gun up in the air, and then he, he's lazy about it because he thinks it's all ridiculous, so he just kind of shoots it, and he ends up shooting the Invisible Swordsman. <laughs> I don't remember that. No, I got to watch that movie again. Oh, dude, that movie's so awesome. <laughs> it's a good one. A creepy, unnatural wind kicks up and blows out the candles. The only light coming from uh, anything in the room is the electric pentacle, mm-hmm. and he senses a presence or a shape, something over by the bed, but he can't make it out in the darkness. All the coverings were being drawn steadily off with a hateful, stealthy sort of motion. I heard the slow, dragging slither of the clothes, but I could see nothing of the thing that pulled. I was aware, in a funny, subconscious, introspective fashion, that the creep had come upon me, yet that I was cooler mentally than I had been for some minutes. Sufficiently so to feel that my hands were sweating coldly, and to shift my revolver half-consciously whilst I rubbed my right hand dry upon my knee, though never for an instant taking my gaze or my attention from those moving clothes. The faint noises from the bed ceased once, and there was a most intense silence, with only the sound of the blood beating in my head. Yet immediately afterwards I heard again the slurring of the bedclothes being dragged off the bed. In the midst of my nervous tension, I remembered the camera and reached round for it, but without looking away from the bed. And then, you know, all in a moment, the whole of the bed coverings were torn off with extraordinary violence, and I heard the flump they made as they were hurled into the corner. There was a time of... Absolute quietness then, for perhaps a couple of minutes, and you can imagine how horrible I felt. The bedclothes had been thrown with such savageness. And then again, the brutal unnaturalness of the thing that had just been done before me. That was, that's actually really, really scary. Except for that mm. for that first part, the, <laughs> it really stuck with me. The, the being pulled off in a stealthy and hateful fashion? Yeah, how does that look? <laughs> I don't know how you would pull that off. I'm going to have to work on that for the video because, yeah, hateful. I, yeah. <laughs> my special effects guy just know when those bedclothes come off on their own, it's got to be stealthy. It's got to be hateful. <laughs> and I'll know it when I see it. You better get this right. <laughs> but it's really creepy, man. He's just crouched in that circle, just waiting yeah. for something to happen. And then these sheets are flung off the bed. I mean, yeah. it's, it's pretty, it's pretty good. It is. It's pretty good. After that, something moves in the room to the door. Mm-hmm. And the seals on the door are broken, and the door opens and slams shut. Right. Karnacki next heard that the cat basket, it creaks, and the cat starts freaking out, and then it goes quiet. And he has a flashlight on, which I'm a little confused about, but then he goes to shut it off really fast, but he still sees something that he didn't want to see, which is the basket has been tipped over, and the cat is half in it. First of all, what was the purpose of the cat to begin with? 
I think it was sort of a canary in the coal mine sort of thing to see if it was dangerous without actually putting himself in danger. Right. Because maybe it couldn't affect the physical world or affect living things or wouldn't affect living things. And so he just wanted to see if that was going to work. And Oh, man, this poor cat just got sacrificed for that purpose. Yeah. But it's, you know, it is true. Now he knows for sure that it's not just legend. This thing can kill. So it worked, but I feel bad for the cat. I felt really bad for the cat. This indistinct shape moved around the room a bit and then charged at Karnacki. But upon hitting the pinnacle, it was kind of thrown back. Freaked him out a lot, but he got an impression of what the thing looked like. And it was, uh, he said, yet yeah, I had learned something, for I knew now that the gray room was haunted by a monstrous hand. <laughs> I did laugh at this. When I read that, it made me laugh, because that's that's kind of ridiculous. I guess I was thinking of it a little more, like he didn't literally mean it was a big monstrous hand. But then I started thinking, well, those people were strangled. <laughs> like that that's really what this is. It's a big scary hand. It says a monstrous hand. Yeah, but you know, I actually did used to be scared of something like this when I was really little. Was it thing from the Adams family? No, no, I wasn't scared of if it was a regular sized hand, it's a giant hand that I was scared of. Because we had this uh in my house for some reason we had this illustrated book of the old testament. Uh-huh. And it had a bunch of paintings in it of different events. And I don't know what chapter this is from, but there was a painting of God's hand coming down from the sky. Uh. And there were all these terrified people running from it. And the hand was gigantic and and burning. This painting was really scary. It was the Old Testament, so I thought this stuff's probably true. This could happen at any time. You know, God could just go, you, and that hand would come down. And it it did freak me out. I had had some bad dreams about it. I didn't laugh like you did. I did. Because I I have some kind of memory of being scared of giant hands, as absurd as that is. Somehow, one of the water jars got moved a bit, and he quickly moves it back into place. This whole setup that he's got is kept him safe. Right. The thing was around, he felt it, but he couldn't quite see it. And then this happened. A little later, as though in a sudden fit of malignant rage, the dead body of the cat was picked up and beaten with dull, sickening blows against the solid floor. That made me feel rather queer. Yeah, that got under my skin a bit, too. Me too, man. That was brutal. Well, the thing is in such a rage that it goes back and mauls the dead cat. It has to hurt something else. It's just like, whoa, that's making this thing pretty scary. That changed my tune, I have to say. Mm -hmm. That that kind of brought a reality to it that uh, I wasn't feeling before. Yeah, yeah. The hand slams uh, the door a few times again, and it tries to charge Karnacki once again, but it's flung away. Karnacki is startled by it and rolls back a bit, and his hand goes to the edge of the pinnacle for a second, but he pulls it back in and he wonders, is this thing maybe influencing me in some way? It's trying to scare me into breaking my pentacle so that it can get me? Yeah, like he can't even trust himself at this moment because without meaning to, he keeps sabotaging his defenses. And I thought that was a pretty cool. You know, I like it when that happens in a story. It seems like what you're doing is normal, but actually it's it's perhaps being controlled by some supernatural right. influence. So this goes on the whole night. Karnacki is afraid to move at all for fear that his actions might be influenced. The hand just goes around around him. The poor cat takes a little bit more beating. He says, uh, twice more, the body of the dead cat was molested. The second time I heard every bone in the body scrunch and crack. Jeez. By the first sign of daylight, the unnatural wind ceases and the thing is gone. Uh, He waits until day totally comes before he makes a move out of his pinnacle because, of course, Mm -hmm. he doesn't want to get tricked. Right. And when he does make it, he runs for the door (laughs) Mm -hmm. and he fumbles with the lock and he just gets out of there really fast. And Peter sees him and get some coffee. Uh Uh-huh. There's that coffee again. There he goes. And then now Karnacki's going to go to bed. One thing I was thinking about, did he just wee in one of those cups or something? Because... (laughs) While he was in there all night? Yeah. You can't not wee the whole night for crying out loud. Yeah, you got to build some kind of bathroom into your pentacle. So he gets up around noon. He gets to work. He cleans up the dead cat mess and doesn't want anybody to see it. So he Mm -hmm. does it himself. He examines where the sheets always end up. It's the same place. 
So he starts drilling some holes in, in some walls, doing some hardcore scientific investigation. Mm-hmm. He checks under the skirting board near where the sheets end up, and he finds a ring. Aha. The curious thing about it was that it was made in the form of a pentagon. That is the same shape as the inside of the magic pentacle, uh, but without the mounts, which formed the points of the defensive star. It was free from all chasing or engraving. So he recognizes this ring. It's the famous luck ring of the Anderson family, a ring handed down from the father to sons for generation, but never worn. And it seems to be that this thing has come from the Crusades, like it's that old. It seems really odd to me. Each son has to promise never to wear the ring as it's handed down. So why have it? It brings luck. Oh, but it's so much temptation. I mean, (laughs) eventually somebody's going to put the ring on. That's like putting a sign over a light switch that says, don't ever turn this off. You know, good luck with that. The first time somebody reads it, they're going to flip it off to see what it does. And this is actually what happened, right? Yeah. He goes to deduce that Sir Holbert, the guy that died, was the Mm -hmm. ancestor of Anderson. And he made a drunken bet to wear the ring and then his wife and child were killed, strangled. And he said he didn't do it. People were pretty suspect. But then the next day he got killed Mm -hmm. and it was all in the gray room. Which was pretty odd. So his wife and child were killed. So people naturally think he did it in in a drunken rage. But to prove his innocence, he says, all right, I'll sleep the next night in the room. How does that prove his innocence? Like, why did people even let him do that? Well, he died. Is it that he knew there was a ghost in there, so he's just letting it have him to prove it? Like, he knew that he was going to get strangled, maybe? It's kind of a form of suicide. Yeah. If his wife and child had just died, I mean, that makes sense to me that he would do something like that. Sure. Karnacki thinks that the ring is some kind of door or key to another world. So he's got a plan. He remakes the pentacle, uh, putting the ring inside of it. And he also uses the electric pentacle again around this ring. His plan seems pretty obvious at this point. His plan is to be in the pentacle with the ring. So maybe it's more obvious to you than to Karnacki because me, I thought, well, if the ring is... like, you need to be outside of the ring right. the things in there. Yes. But he's in there with it initially. So it's a plan. <laughs> I just don't know if it's a good one. Yeah, I don't know why he thought he had to be in there with it. I don't know. He sends Peter away for the night, and he's going to stay in the room again. Everything seems to be normal until about 11. Then he feels something is going on. Nothing really happens until midnight, and then he felt something behind him. He turns, and he gets a blast of unnatural air, and he looks at the ring, and something strange is going on with it. Strange shadows are moving around the ring. Death Hand is forming in the pentacle with him. He wants to throw the ring out. He knows it's coming from the ring. He wants to stay protected. Karnacki starts to panic and he goes to grab the ring, but he can't. It moves. Then it rises into the air. Time to go. So Karnacki gives a crazy yell and jumps out of the pentacle. He can see the hand and it moves at Karnacki, but it can't get to him. It's trapped in the pentacle. It still freaks him out so much that he ran out and locks the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he goes back to his room. Yeah. And he tries to get some sleep, can't do it, but he hears no slamming door sounds, nothing. Right. The thing is clearly trapped in like a that prison and no door slam. In the morning, Peter shows up with some coffee yet again, mm-hmm. and he goes, wow, I think my plan worked. So Karnacki goes to check in the room. He sees that everything is exactly as he left it. The ring is still in the circle. So he leaves and locks the door behind him. After a sleep of some hours, I left the house. I returned in the afternoon in a cab. I had with me an oxyhydrogen jet and two cylinders containing the gases. I carried the things into the grey room, and there, in the centre of the electric pentacle, I erected the little furnace. Five minutes later, the lock ring, once the lock but now the bane of the Anderson family, was no more than a little solid splash of hot metal. Konaki felt in his pocket and pulled out something wrapped in tissue paper. He passed it to me. I opened it and found a small circle of greyish metal, something like lead, only harder and rather brighter. Well, I asked at length, after examining it and handing it round to the others, did that stop the haunting? 
Konaki nodded. Yes, he said. I slept three nights in the Grey Room before I left. Old Peter nearly fainted when he knew that I meant to. But by the third night, he seemed to realize that the house was just safe and ordinary. And you know, I believe in his heart, he hardly approved. Konaki stood up and began to shake hands. Out you go, he said, genially. And presently we went, pondering, to our various homes. And that is the conclusion. That's it. So the ring uh, was the issue the whole time. It was kind of a Lord of the Rings ending there, where you have to melt it down and <laughs> stop the the evil. This is pre-Lord of the Rings, though. So. Uh, I, yeah, I guess, but there's no giant eagles. No, there aren't any giant eagles. Again, I wasn't in love with the story, but I did enjoy the read. Yeah. It was a good gateway monster into the world of Karnak. <laughs> and uh, I'm looking forward to more ghost-finding nuttiness. I think up next we're going to do a story called The House Among the Laurel. That is correct. That is the next one we're doing. I just want folks to know that this is our free show of the month, and we have three additional shows each month for subscribers to the show. That's right. So if you like what you're hearing, always make sure to go check us out, witchhousemedia.com. $6.66 a quarter. That's three months of goodness. Get you in, get you all the shows. And I want to thank John Hancock for doing an amazing reading. He is a fan of Karnacki. I know this for a fact, so he's excited about doing this. So maybe we'll have him sticking with us the whole month. Oh, that would be great. Well, I feel like we're going to get there, I think, by the end of the month. My prediction is that we'll like Karnacki. Actually, this is not one of the favorite Karnacki stories. This was like a first date, you know. We liked him, but we noticed some defects. <laughs> <laughs> now we got to see, uh, you know, are you going to learn to love the defects? Oh, yeah. Well, no, I definitely want a second date with Karnacki. Well, we got a second date coming up next week. Chris, it was good talking to you about it. And Chad, it was also good talking to you. And with that, you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. 